All right, good morning. We're uh, at session eight, I think, of how we got our Bible. So we have two more after this one, and then we'll be finished up. There's a couple of sheets back there if you want one, uh, gentlemen, when you come in the door there. We're talking about the um, modern English period of translation, the later modern period from 1780. Uh, We noticed the King James Version was translated in uh, 1611, and then it went through various revisions. The version of the King James Version we're using right now is 1769, the fourth revision by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. And then uh, in the latter part of the 1800s, uh, remember we talked about there there was felt a need to revise the King James again. Uh, One of the problems was archaic language. The language of the King James, uh, even in the 1769 edition, the modern edition, the one we use, we can think of as the one we use today, people use today, still has, you know, older language, older words, uh, and that we don't use anymore. It's difficult for people who have no experience, who don't grow up with it, to, to understand the King James. So there was the archaic language problem, there was the text problem in the sense that the King James was based upon a very few Greek manuscripts. Even though we have these differences in Greek manuscripts, we're still talking about the same Bible. It's just there's some differences. The, the, by using all of these manuscripts, you can get a little more accurate translation. And so um, uh, the King James was, didn't take, make use of these later manuscripts that were discovered after the King James was translated and so forth. So we had the uh, King James, 1769, and we talked about last week the revised version of 1881. So in 1881, a new translation was done, a revision of the King James. Now all these translations look at the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but the principle here is to retain the general language, style, and sense of the King James Version. So they're still very similar. The revised version of 1881 was done, remember, in Britain, basically, a British translation. But some Americans were invited to help out. The head of the American committee was Dr. Philip Schaff. And he and some Americans, 30 Americans, were asked to contribute to this edition. The the people in charge in Britain didn't agree, didn't accept all the changes that the Americans wanted, and that's going to be important in a moment, because the Americans decided to come out with their own revision themselves in 1901, as we'll see. And uh, remember, they were supposed to follow the King James Version, the authorized version, as consistently as they could. They updated some of the language. They uh, uh, used the more up-to-date Greek text in translating. Remember, it came out in 1881, and we said that in the United States, two Chicago newspapers printed the entire New Testament. So you could pick up your newspaper that day in 1881 and read the revised version of 1881 uh, for just the cost of the newspaper. And we noticed that they actually had an advertisement there that you could get a copy for free if you were didn't if you were too poor to pay. 
The revised version, as I mentioned here, kind of I kind of stopped in the middle of the revised version last last time. Uh, the new te- I said the Old Testament here was completed in 1885. Uh, the Apocrypha was not originally part of this, but it was completed in 1895. And as I say here, the revised version departed from the practice of printing each verse as a separate paragraph. If you look at the King James, every verse is indented. You know, you indent a paragraph, a new paragraph. So if you look at the King James, every verse is indented. Here, it's got paragraphs, like our NIV does. So you just have a paragraph here, one through three. Four through nine is the second paragraph. So that was a change. It's an improvement, a great improvement, I think, because that enables us to sort of look at the paragraph as a unit rather than just get the problem with the individual verse thing is sometimes you take a verse out of context. So this helps you place the verse in its proper context by having uh, paragraph divisions, and one paragraph and so forth. Um, so that that's a helpful thing. Um, the revised version was a very accurate translation. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this later. In one sense, it was a little bit of a step backward, if I can say that. It was a step backward, and you may not think this is a step backward, but it had the practice of translating each Greek word by the same English word. Now, you might think, well, that's a good thing. It's actually not. Because when you go from one language to another, the Greek word doesn't have an exact equivalent in English. You can't always translate it the same way. But that was the theory of translation that was going around then. The King James didn't adopt that theory. I don't know if you can remember, we read back and we read the preface of the King James that said, we're not doing that. That's not the way we're doing it. These people decided to do that. In some sense, it was a step backward. So like Charles Spurgeon summed up the situation when he said, the RV was strong in Greek, weak in English. That was his opinion about it. Here's another opinion. The Times of London, um, May the 14th, 1935, said the real problem with the selected group company of revisers was that while it included the most eminent authorities of the time of the Greek New Testament, New Testament Greek, it included not men of letters versed in rhythm, cadence, and euphony of good English. Another opinion says this, the reviser's ideal of faithfulness in translation was a meticulous word-for-word reproduction of the Greek text in English words, using the same English word for a given Greek word whenever possible, leaving no Greek word without translation into a corresponding English word, following the order of the Greek words rather than the order natural to English, and attempting to translate the article and the tenses with a precision alien to English idiom. The result is that the revised version is distinctly translation English. And so it's not quite normal English. It has a kind of a, uh, a structure to it that makes it more like translation English, which is something like when you teach Greek to students, they translate very literally, and uh, they come up with kind of a translation English, but it's not, it's not often easily understandable English. So, you know, you get something like this. Here's 2 Corinthians 10, 13, 14. Now, this is a difficult Greek passage to translate, so I'm using maybe not the fairest example. This is a tough one here. It's hard to translate for anybody. Hard to make sense out of. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking about why he is coming to them, why he's teaching them. And the reason he can is because he's the apostle of the Gentiles. 
And God has told Paul to go wherever the Gentiles are and to reach the Gentiles. But if you look at the RV, it says, But we will not glory beyond our measure, but according to the measure of the promise which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves overmuch as though we reach not unto you, for we came even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Heavens no, you know. It's a difficult thing to understand. Uh, it's very difficult. So uh, it's not really natural English. So the NIV tries to put in a little more natural English. It's still not the easiest. It says, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confirm and find our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case, if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. It's a little better. It's a little more natural, normal English, but it's still difficult. So the revised version, uh, here it is. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't put up something else. Uh, I was going to say about this. Uh, so this was... Sold very well initially. Uh, it uh, was a big seller in England and so forth. But in the United States, uh, people were not as satisfied with it. Uh, one of the reasons was it used a lot of British English. And there's a difference between the way Brits speak and the way we speak. If you've been traveling like Ron has, you know that's the case. It's different between the way the Scottish uh, speak, the Scots speak, and the way we speak. You know, they have different idioms, different terms, and so forth. So the Americans weren't too happy. So I mentioned here the American Standard Version of 1901. We're still in the King James tradition, still going back to Tyndall. All these people are still using the same basic translation, just modifying, revising. So the Americans, uh, they had to pledge that they wouldn't come out with their own translation for 14 years. But in 1901, they decided to revise the revised version and produce their own called the American Standard Version of 1901. Remember, they had, they had put in a preface in the revised version places where the Americans disagreed. Well, they brought those into the text. Um, they eliminated more archaic language, more of the older language. They got rid of that. And they, dis they adopted a more American kind of English throughout a little bit to make it a little better for Americans, the American Standard Version of 1901. I also mentioned they departed from the normal preference of translating the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, with the Lord, substituting instead Jehovah. Okay, let's explain that. If you look at your King James Version, or the New American Standard Version, English Standard Version, the ESV, the NIV, the NIV we use, if you look at almost any of these Bibles, You'll notice in the Old Testament that the word Lord is spelled two different ways. Sometimes check that out. You'll see that there's spellings capital L, then small letters here, and then sort of an all-capital Lord. You'll see that in the, in the Old Testament. And the reason they're doing that is they're trying to tell you that these are two different words, two different Hebrew words. This word... Uh, the small, capital L-O-R-D, is the, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which just means Lord, means master. 
owner, Lord, just a standard word for Lord. They, when they, when you see this word, Lord, this is a different word. This is the word that we think maybe should be pronounced something like Yahweh or Yahweh. It's difficult to explain why. I'm not sure how exactly it's pronounced. But this is a personal name. Even though it's translated with a title, Lord, it's not a title. It's a personal name, like Bill or Ron. It's, it's a personal name. This is God's personal name. God has a personal name in the Old Testament. So like in Psalm 110.1, you see that personal name. The Lord says to my Lord. This is Yahweh, Jehovah, saying to my Lord, the Messiah, saying to Christ, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, what this is translating here, this capital L, is called the Tetragrammaton. Here it is. This is the divine name. So here it is in Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew is written from right to left. Remember that from your Hebrew class? (coughs) So... This is the Y, there's an H, there's a W, and there's an H. Y-H-W-H. That's the name of God. We know that's the name of God. But if you remember in our study, that weeks back, we said that the Hebrew language is written with consonants, primarily. There are no vowels in the alphabet. So when Hebrew was written, when Moses wrote and so forth, the writers wrote, they wrote Y-H-W-H. Now, they obviously knew how to pronounce it, but it's the, the pronunciation, we're not sure if we have the correct pronunciation today. Why is that? Because the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so for that reason, Jews did not pronounce this word. When they read their Bible and they got to Yahweh here, Y-H-W-H, when they got to that, uh, they they did not pronounce it. Now I said the the consonants are Y H W H. We think that the consonant vowels are these two vowels. Now I can't go into explaining why we think those are the vowels, but there's some evidence that those might be the vowels. So you'll see if you look if you looked at some scholarly books, you might see somebody mention Yahweh Yahweh. And in fact, I'll mention, if you look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it has that word in there. So, the Jews did not write, you remember the original Bible, but Moses wrote, didn't have any vowels in it, didn't have any vowel points. Those were added later. Remember, our vowel points come from the Masoretes in the 800s. Those were put in. Well, when the vowel points were put in, when the vowels were added to the Hebrew text, and they got to this word, Jews didn't say it. When Jews got here, they didn't say Yahweh because they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain. So what they would say usually is Adonai. Instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai. They would substitute something for it, you see? So that way you wouldn't say the Lord's name. So when they got to this, they would say, the Adonai says to my Adonai. And they would just say Adonai again. That way you wouldn't say the name Yahweh and take the Lord's name in vain. Well, gradually they have they have replaced different things. If you if you went to a Hebrew synagogue today, they would say Hashem. They would say the name. 
They wouldn't even say Adonai. They'd say the name. You'd hear them read the text. And if you look at the website, you look at websites sometimes of Orthodox Jews, they won't even, they won't even put the name, they won't even say G-O-D. Sometimes you'll see on the web that. You know you've got an Orthodox Jew now. So they don't want to take the Lord's name or God's name or anything. They don't even spell it. They don't even write it. <laughs> Out like that. So we think this name, this tetragrammaton, tetra, four, gamma, four letters, tetragrammaton, we think that it probably should be pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh, depending on how that is. Well, as this comes into various languages, the W and the V are very similar, like in German, the J. Especially in German, this would come out something like this. Uh, J-H-V-H. So remember, the Masoretes, we talked about them, they're putting in those vowels. And they see Y-H-W-H. They don't put the vowels in for Yahweh. They don't put in the A and the E. They don't put those vowels in. Because they don't want anybody to pronounce the name. So when they put the vowels in, which remember they're put underneath the letters, those vowel points we saw, they put in the vowel letters for Adonai. They put in the vowels for a different word. And the reason they do that is they say, any Jew who reads this knows you're not supposed to say Yahweh. You're supposed to say Adonai. So they put the vowels in for Adonai. So, Christians came along later. Remember we talked about during the Middle Ages, Christians didn't know Greek and Christians didn't know Hebrew. So these dumb Christians come along later. And they're trying to figure out, translate this Bible into English. And they see these letters. Y-H-W-H, and they see the vowels underneath it. They think those are the correct vowels. They're the wrong vowels. That's where we get Jehovah from. So the vowels are the wrong vowels, and they're there because they took the vowels from Adonai. So if you look at a Hebrew Bible today, you'll see the letters, but you'll see the vowels for Adonai. Now, it's a fine, it's a fine thing, because Jehovah is an attempt to approximate the divine name. Nothing wrong with Jehovah. It's an attempt to approximate the divine name. Um, so we think today, most scholars think it's probably Yahweh is probably a better approximation of the divine name. But we're not perfectly sure because we don't know how they pronounce those vowels exactly. So you'll see the word Jehovah even in the King James. Four times in the King James, they translated that tetragrammaton not, like I just said, not with the L-O-R-D capital. They did that every time, except for four times. Four times they translated it um, Jehovah, like in Exodus 6.3. Uh, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob by my name of God Almighty, but by name Jehovah I was not known to them. So Jehovah does occur four times in the King James Version to translate this word, the Tetragrammaton. But most of the time, they use the word Lord. So why do they do this? Because they're approximating what the Jews do. You're substituting a title for a personal name. In other words, you're showing reverence for the divine name. You're showing reverence. So this tradition of showing reverence for the divine name by giving it the title Lord, but they distinguish it with this all caps. 
And that tradition continues through the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, they all do it. But the ASV, um, they made the change of replacing, at least in most cases, uh, this tetragrammaton with the word Jehovah. So, whereas the ASV, whereas the revised version had the Lord here, like the King James, they put in Jehovah here in the ASV of 1901. They did some other American things, like the British had which, which we have who. I mean, everybody has who today, but if you notice in the King James, sometimes even when you refer to a person, it says, the man which went into the door, went into this house. The man which went into the You're supposed to say the man who went, right? Well, the older English had which there, places like that. So they Americanized it, changed Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit, and so on, updated the language quite a bit there. Uh, as I say here, they rearranged the paragraphs, the titles, and punctuation, and so forth. Marginal readings reduced about 80% of the Apocrypha was omitted. The ASV had a better reading style. It became more popular in the United States than the RV did in England. So, I just put up with the Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's still very similar. Seat you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable. Your spiritual service, rather than your reasonable service, still very, very similar. But the ASV became quite, I say popular, I don't know if I can really say that truthfully. It became very popular, especially in scholarly circles, in academic circles, in schools and colleges, in seminaries. In theological seminaries, it became a very popular Bible because the professors there wanted to use the latest version based on their latest Greek text and so forth. So, uh, and many denominations adopted. The Presbyterian Church, there's so many Presbyterian Church now, it's hard to keep track of it, but years ago, before there was as many splits, you know, the Presbyterian Church said about 1900 was there was one main denomination, and, and in 1901 they replaced the King James with the ASV. Their whole denomination did. They accepted the ASV of 19. Some other denominations did too. Um, I had a teacher when I had a teacher when I was in uh, seminary, um, and he had gone to Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville back in the 30s, and. Um, he had studied there, and he was blind. He was blind from birth, and he was getting a doctorate there. And as part of this process, he wanted to memorize the New Testament. And uh, he, you know, he wanted to memorize the New Testament. Well, naturally, he's going to memorize King James. No, they convinced him because at Southern Baptist Seminary in the 1930s, the only Bible that they would really allow was the ASV of 1901. That was that was it because. The feeling was this ASV is going to, the King James will be dead in a few years. Well, of course, it never happened. <laughs> but a King James will be gone. It'll be over. This this Bible will replace the King James. So don't waste your time memorizing the King James. So he memorized the entire New Testament ASV of 1901. It was the biggest mistake he ever made, he said. You know, but that's what you know, he thought. That was in the air. And he thought it would, you know. So ever, whenever he would get up and preach and quote the Bible, people would think, this guy's missing it. This guy doesn't get it because, you know, it'd be slightly different from the King James Version. 
So it was popular in that sense in a lot of places and so on. So I'll talk about this later, but the New American Standard Bible, which many churches use, is a revision of the American Standard of 1901, but we'll come back to that later. Let's talk about modern speech versions. Remember, the Revised Version and even the ASV were very literal word-for-word translations. There developed a movement at the beginning of the 20th century to sort of translate the Bible into modern, everyday speech as we normally speak. The impetus for this came from... Well, there was a couple of... Two impetuses for this, two reasons for this. One reason for this was that it, it came to light more clearly... In the latter part of the 19th century, the 1890s, and the beginning of the 20th century, it became more clear that the language of the New Testament, the Koine, was common everyday language. Remember, we call it Koine Greek because Koine means common every day. So the language of the New Testament that's written in, it's not the language of academia, it's the language of the common everyday people and so forth. And so this really came to light with discoveries of papyri in Egypt. And we talked about those papyrus manuscripts, some of the manuscripts of the New Testament papyrus. Well, when the Europeans were excavating in Egypt, you know, and dragging everything out of Egypt, taking it back, they excavated a place called Oxyrhynchus. Oxyrhynchus. And uh, 1897, they discovered a bundle of manuscripts. They they brought home to Britain 700 cartons of papyri. 700 cartons. 500,000 manuscripts that they brought out of it. Now, they're not all Bible manuscripts. They're just pieces of paper that they brought out of Egypt. They've been publishing these papyri, that is, telling us what they are, since 1898. And they still haven't finished So from 1898 to 2014, they produced 80 volumes. And they still got about 30 more that they're going to publish. So what these papyri showed was, they showed that the Greek of the New Testament was just the common everyday Greek. I don't know if we talked about this or not, but before, let's say the time of the King James, the only Greek that the King James translators were familiar with was the Greek of classical period, of 500 B.C., 400 B.C., the the period of the classical writers, Plato, you know, and so forth. That was the Greek they were familiar with. And the Greek of the New Testament, being 500 years later, is different than classical Greek. We call it Koine today. We call it Koine because of Oxyrhynchus right here, primarily. And so when the King James translators translated some of the things... They didn't know what to make of it sometimes because it didn't match the Greek of Plato and Aristotle. It wasn't exactly the same kind of Greek. They couldn't quite figure it out. When they couldn't figure things out, they went to the Latin Vulgate and just translated what the Latin Vulgate had because they knew they understood Latin extremely well. But when these manuscripts were discovered, they discovered, hey, the Greek of the New Testament is really just the Greek of everyday people in the first century. We just didn't know that because we didn't have any evidence of that back in 1600 when the King James was translated. So they found these manuscripts, and this changed our understanding of the Greek of the Koine. It's just common every day. So they had, that was one impetus. They said, some people said, let's translate the Bible into common everyday English. 
The second impetus was it's very difficult to to explain the Bible to young people, to teenagers and so forth. The King James, the, the language is kind of archaic. It's, it's difficult uh, for many people, for younger people, or people who don't have any experience with the Bible at all, didn't grow up with the Bible. It's very difficult. So these were the impetus for these 20th century, for these modern uh, versions. So these are called modern speech versions. The first one of these was 1901, right at the beginning of the 20th century, called the 20th Century New Testament. And this was pioneered by lay people, not by seminary professors, not by scholars, but just lay people. Because back in 1900, people actually took Latin and Greek in school. (laughs) And so one of these persons was the wife of a congregational minister, Mary Higgins, Higgs, I'm sorry, Another fellow who was involved in this, uh, Ernest Milan, he was a telegraph engineer, a telegraph operator. But these people, they went to British schools and they studied Greek. And these discoveries started coming. And, and so they gr- gathered a group of translators, about 20, most of whom were just lay people, people not in the ministry, not gone to seminary, not, you know, and not had, a, you know, that much theological education. But And they decided we're going to translate. And they produced this 20th century New Testament. Um, I say here, uh, here is, uh, here's what they said. Here's the, here's the, in the preface, they, they tell us uh, what their motivation was. Few English-speaking people of today have the opportunity of reading the Bible in English of their own time. In the course of the last hundred years, the Bible has been translated into everyday language of the natives of most countries. But the language of our Bible is still the English of 300 years ago. The translation now offered the public had its origin in the discovery that the English of the authorized version, closely followed in that of the revised version of 1881, remember, though valued by the more educated reader for its antique charm, is in many passages difficult for those who are less educated or is even unintelligible to them. The retention, too, of a form of English no longer in common use not only gives the impression that the contents of the Bible have little to do with our daily life of the life of the day, but also requires the expenditure of much time and labor on the part of those who wish to understand or explain it. So they produced this 20th century New Testament. Here's what it looks like in the Romans 1 and 2. I entreat you, therefore, brothers by all God's mercies to you to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is for your reasonable worship do not conform to the fashion of the age but let your lives be transformed by your attitude of mind so that you may discern what God's will is all that is good, acceptable and perfect well a number of people got into this movement a man by the name of Richard Weymouth Dr. Richard F. Weymouth he was a classical scholar and he had been consulted. These people who translated the 20th century sometimes would ask for advice from, from scholars who knew Greek very well and so forth. And he decided to produce his own uh, uh, version in modern English. So it's called the New Testament in Modern Speech. And he produced his own. I plead with you, therefore, brethren, by the compassions of God to present all your faculties to him in a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Well, this continues on. Uh, The next one, 
There's a whole string of these. Moffat's version, 1913 for the New Testament, 1924 for the Old Testament. Most popular of these early ones was this one by James Moffat. Moffat was a, a British, a, a Scottish scholar, a brilliant guy, very brilliant. We don't know his name today, but at the time he was extremely well known, very well known uh, to the world. One time he came to America and he was giving a lecture in a certain city and the billboard said, the author of the Bible to lecture tonight. <laughs> author of the Bible to lecture tonight. Uh, he produced a translation called uh, New Testament and New Translation, as I say, 1913, the Old Testament, 1924. A one-volume edition was produced in 1928, and he revised it in 1935. Here he is, James Moffat. And here's his version. Well then, my brothers, I appeal to you by all the mercy of God to dedicate your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated and acceptable to God. Sometimes you'll see his stuff in books. If you go to, even if you go to the Salvation Army books place, you might find a copy of Moffat's New Testament or something. Um, in fact, his was so popular that a whole commentary on the Bible was written based on his translation. The seminary where I used to teach, we have Moffat's commentary. It's a multi-volume thing on the whole Bible. It was extremely popular. The Americans got involved in this. Goodspeed's New Testament, 1923, done by Edgar J. Goodspeed. He was a famous professor at the University of Chicago. And so once at the University of Chicago, they were having a, uh, a meeting, and he was talking, he was giving a lecture about how these other modern versions had problems, their difficulty, and he was pointing out all the problems. And somebody said, well, if you're so smart... They didn't exactly say that, but that's my paraphrase. If you're so smart, why don't you tra- why don't you do one yourself? He did. So he decided he would make his own translation, which he did, 1923. This was the first one to adopt a consciously American idiom, a more of American English. A, a colleague in the Old Testament department I mentioned there, J.M.P. Smith, finished the Old Testament in 1923, and a single volume was published called The Bible American Translation. As I mentioned, he was criticized for monkeying with the Bible, according to the headline in the Chicago Tribune. The New York Times criticized him for changing candle to lamp. The King James has candle, talks about candles. But of course, lamp is the more accurate. They didn't have candles back in New Testament times. That's a more modern invention. They had oil lamps, you know, but he was criticized for changing the King James. He was good speed. Appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by this mercy of God to offer your bodies in a living sacrifice that will be holy and acceptable to God, that is your rational worship. Even the Roman Catholics got involved in this. At least uh, one Roman Catholic, Ronald Knox. Uh, in 1939, the Roman Catholic Church granted Ronald Knox, a scholar at Oxford, permission to translate the Latin Vulgate into modern English. So you weren't even permitted by the Roman Catholic remember to translate. There was only one version that was acceptable, the Douay Reims. You remember the Douay Reims we talked about? We'll talk about that again. So he had to get special permission to translate into modern English. New Testament was in 1949, the Old Testament I mean 1945, the Old Testament 1949. And I say although he produced an excellent translation, his version suffered from the fact it was a translation of translation. 
So he wasn't translating from the old, the, in the Old Testament from the Hebrew. He was translating from the Latin, which was translated from the Hebrew. And from the New Testament, he wasn't translating from Greek, but from Latin. So he was translating from a translation. So that was a, a problem with his translation. And also about this time, we looked at this chart before a little bit. Remember the Douay Reims of 1609-1610, that Catholic translation that was produced right before the King James. And then we said Bishop Chaloner revised that, a British a Roman Catholic bishop. Well, Knox did his work in 1944-49, but in 1943, the Pope permitted translation from the original languages for the first time. So then there was kind of a rush by Roman Catholics to translate into English, and so Knox had done his work on the Latin Vulgate, so it just didn't you know, get the acceptance that it might have otherwise. But here's his Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then there's Phillips, J.B. Phillips, 1958. New Testament revised in 1972. Phillips uh, got his impetus to do this during World War II. And his impetus came from the fact that he was trying to teach young people during... World War II about the Bible and he and they didn't understand the King James that well. So he decided to try his hand at translation. He first decided to work with Paul's epistles. And so his translation, as I mentioned here in his letters, uh, Letters to Young Churches was published in 1947. I've seen copies, or used to see copies in bookstores. You can go to there's all kinds of bookstores. Use bookstores. You see letters to young churches. It was quite popular in America. Um, in his preface, uh, in the preface to this letters to young churches, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, um, "It would have saved me a great deal of labor if this book had come into my hands when I first seriously began to try to discover what Christianity was." So he first did the epistles. That was followed by the Gospels in 1952, Acts in 1955, Revelation in 57, the entire New Testament in 1958. He finished the entire New Testament. Now, his work was very paraphrastic. He used a lot of words to try to explain very paraphrastic. As you can see, greet one another with a holy kiss. He translated shake handshake all around. It's not exactly translation. (laughs) Brush your hair is not quite the same thing as put oil on your head. So he's very paraphrastic here. Easy to read, but now you begin to question the accuracy a little bit of these translations when you start doing that. Now, to Philip's credit, he didn't... None of these people thought that these modern... Uh, translations were to replace the standard Bible in the churches. They didn't. They didn't produce these so that people would give up their King James versions and use these Bibles as their primary Bible. They just thought of these Bibles as aids to understanding the Bible. In fact, Phillips got very concerned that his th- his translation got so popular that people were taking it as the authoritative thing. So in 1972. He, re, he, he went over his work and got rid of some of this stuff right here because he, people were just taking his Bible as the authoritative and he realized, you know, uh, this was not the best thing. Here's his Romans 12, 1 and 2. With wise wide open, 
to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated him, and acceptable him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Now, that's a stroke of brilliance right there. Think about that. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Go ahead. So he wanted it to be an aid to what Bible? The Knox Bible? Well... The King James, whatever people are using, the King James usually are the ASV. Now, this is an American. This is an American Protestant we're talking about here. So he was just saying this is a Bible you can read and, and, and use as an aid study. But and he didn't expect it to be used in churches for preaching and things like that. He just thought it was an aid. That's what most. That's what all these modern versions were about, yes. Uh, on that paraphrase, though, Bill, uh, where did that living Bible come in? Well, we'll get to there. We're, we're coming. We're just going historically by day here, and we're only up to 1958 here. You know, so we, we got a, we got we got 20 more. We got 15 more years, and we'll get there. We'll get in the living Bible. Well, now we come back to the string of Bibles in the King James tradition. Now we come to the Revised Standard Version of 1946 which, as you can see, is a revision of the ASV of 1901. Has anybody ever heard of the RSV? Some have. Now, John Piper, this was his favorite Bible. This was the Bible he used most of his life until recent times when he switched to the ESV. This is the Bible he used in seminary and college and so forth. So it's very popular but it wasn't as popular in our circles. Obviously, in the circles you moved in, except for our more liberal. I know I always heard it was liberal. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you heard. It was you heard of it. You heard it was liberal. I was a judge. Yeah. As I say here, uh, this was a revision of the ASV of 1901, sponsored by the International Council of Religious Education, now the... National Council of Churches, who in 1929 attained the copyright. The idea was to modernize the language of the King James Version, the ASV, uh, without you know departing from it too much, and and getting and, and they did depart from the idea of using the same Greek word to always translate the using the same English word to translate the same Greek word. They went back to the more King James principle on that. I mentioned number two, a committee of 32 scholars, the Standard Bible Committee from various denominations was divided into two groups, Old Testament, New Testament. They began working in 1937. Now what's important here to note is that these scholars were all, if not exclusively, of what we call a liberal persuasion, a liberal theological persuasion. The chairman of the committee was from Yale Divinity School, Luther A. Weigel. Now, what do I mean when I say these people were of a liberal theological persuasion? Well, before 1900, say, 1850, 1800s, 1700s, we had various denominations in the United States. You know, We had Presbyterians in 1850, we had Lutherans in 1850, we had Baptists in 1850, but... They were none of them were what we would call liberal. That is, they all believed in the authority of the Bible. They had different interpretations. But a Lutheran in the Civil War, an Episcopalian in the Civil War, 
one of the presidents, early presidents that Moody Bible Institute was an Episcopalian. The Episcopalians in the 1890s, the 1880s, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, they all believed in the authority of scriptures. But then, uh, new thinking came in and new ways of interpreting the Bible, what we call liberalism, or it's usually called modernism. And around the turn of the century, there was a division in Christianity between usually called fundamentalist modernist controversy or division. The fundamentalists were people who believed that Scripture was authoritative. We believed in the fundamentals of the faith, like the virgin birth, the second coming of Christ, the inspiration of Scripture, bodily resurrection, things like that. But liberals began to question the authority of Scripture. They said the Bible cannot is not absolutely authoritative. It has errors in it. Christ is not really virgin born. That's you know we question the miracles. We don't really believe necessarily in all the miracles. So you get a division in Christianity. You have people who call themselves Christians who don't believe in the authority of Scripture anymore. Now that sounds like stupidity. I mean, why would you? If you don't believe in the Bible, why would you want to call yourself Christian? What's your authority for believing anything? If you don't, if you believe the Bible has errors and it's not correct, why do you believe anything? But that's what's happened. That's what happened in our country and all the countries of the world. Liberalism. So now we have in various denominations, you have Baptist or Bible people like us who are conservative, but you have Baptists who are liberals who don't believe in the authority of Scripture, who don't believe in the virgin birth. You have Presbyterians who are some are conservative, some are liberal. You have Methodists, some are conservative, some are liberal. So in all these denominations, and this is the so before when we had Bible translation, that wasn't a problem. Because even if you had people of different denominations, they all believed in the authority of Scripture. But now, in the 1900s, now you've got people on the committee here who don't believe necessarily in the authority of Scripture. You don't necessarily believe in the virgin birth. And this affects the way they translate. So the RS, it, it didn't greatly affect the RSV, but it came in at various places. Now the RSV modernized various language like Seth becomes says, sendeth became sins, we're familiar with that. The thou, thee, thine were dropped except when God was addressed. Uh, as I say here, it didn't follow the ASV in uh, the translation of the divine name with Jehovah. It went back to the Lord here for Yahweh and so forth. The Apocrypha, though not original part of the project, were added in 1957. The, the RSV committee continued to work. They didn't disband. They became very ecumenical. They brought Roman Catholics in, and they produced a Roman Catholic version of the RSV with the Apocryphal books that the Roman Catholic Church accepts. Um, so the RSV was never accepted by conservatives. Uh, I went to Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana for my doctoral work, and they produced here in the 1940s, when this came out, they find the 50s, they produced a pamphlet uh, uh, attacking the RSV. The other big seminary was Dallas Theological Seminary. They attacked the RSV in those days. So conservatives attacked the RSV because of its liberal bias. Some of its liberal bias can be seen in the fact that uh, it translates Isaiah 7.14. Instead of virgin, it says young woman. A young woman will conceive, not a virgin will conceive, and so forth. 
So conservatives have never really liked this too much. Now, most of the RSV was well done. It wasn't that it was all bad. Most of it was well done. But conservatives generally didn't like this. There was a pastor in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, who took a copy of the RSV and took a blowtorch to it in the church service, and he sent the contents in a tin can to the head of the committee, Dr. Weigel there, and and uh, here's, the, here's the contents of the RSV. Um, the, Dr. Weigel also got a letter from a fellow who said, uh, who is this Tom Nelson who has written the Bible? Well, the, the RSV was, was published by Thomas Nelson Publish. He says, who is this Thomas Nelson who has produced a Bible? He says, I don't want Thomas Nelson's Bible. I want the Bible that was produced by the Apostle James. <laughs> the Apostle James, you know. <laughs> so uh, you can see what we got. Let's stop here. We've gone over time. We'll pick it up here next week.